Hi, my name is Jess. I serve as one of the leaders here at the Point Church at Federal Way. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen to one of our recent sermons. I hope that as you listen to this sermon, that you feel seen and heard and known by the God who created the universe. Here at the Point Church, that's what we strive to do. Make people feel seen, heard, and known so they see, hear, and know Jesus. I hope over these next few minutes that you truly begin to feel him and see him and know him. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to visit our website, thepointfw.com. Be sure to note, the point has an E at the end. We'd love to get in contact with you and answer any questions you have. All right, let's dive into the message. Today, guys, we're going to dive back into our study of the book of John. So if you've been with us for a while, we've been going through the book of John. And the book of John uh, is a gospel or a biography of Jesus' life written by one of his closest followers, closest friends, a guy named John. Uh, We spent a few weeks in the Old Testament showing how all of the Old Testament um, stories really started to point towards Jesus. And John uses those Old Testament stories to help shape what Jesus was doing, uh, to help show that the God who was the God of the Old Testament is also the same God that Jesus was claiming to be from and was, as we'll learn today, claiming to be. And I want to start by quoting one of the all-time greatest writers of all. Uh, uh, his name is C.S. Lewis. And I often find myself uh, quoting him or at least like borrowing his ideas, like paraphrased in my own words. Um, and one of his greatest works is a book called Mere Christianity. In fact, I learned yesterday that it was an, an integral uh, book for, for Pastor Jeff uh, in his journey to faith. And this book was adapted, actually, from a series of talks that uh, Lewis gave on the BBC radio between 1941 and 1944. And at its core, it's an appeal to a sensible skeptic that God is real and that Jesus was his son sent to earth to redeem it. So the whole book is essentially boiled down to that. In the book, Jesus, or sorry, in the book, Lewis makes this argument. And it's, it wasn't the crux of the book. It wasn't really a theme throughout. It was actually just kind of this one little paragraph, and it became probably the most compelling argument of the entire book, and it actually became the most famous argument of the entire thing. I'm going to read it in his words because his prose are way better than mine. And I, he was also British, so I will be reading it in a British accent so that we can really get what... No, we're not going to do that um, because that would be embarrassing for all of us. So, uh, so this is an excerpt from Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus... I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut, up, shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. 
But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was God. See, Jesus claimed to be God. His, his claim is either true or it's not true, right? There's, there's no in-between. If, if what he claimed is true, then he is God. If his claim isn't true, then he made the claim knowing that it wasn't true, and thus he was a liar. Or Jesus made the claim thinking that it was true, which actually makes him a lunatic. If you think you're God and you're not, then you're crazy. If you claim to be God and you know that you're not, then you're a liar. There's just no wiggle room there. Therefore, we're left with three logical options. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he is who he said he was, the Lord. This argument has been dubbed the, the trilemma. Now, if you actually know anything about trilemmas, this actually isn't a trilemma, but we're going to stick with trilemma because that's what it's called. Uh, I don't have time to get into the etymology of that word, but this trilemma is what we see presented in today's passage. So Harper just read it for us, but let's look at the first few verses again together. It's going to be in John chapter 7. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open them. John's in the New Testament about three-fourths of the way. This goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you've got your phone and you want to follow along on the same uh, version, we're going to use what's called the Christian Standard Bible or the CSB. So we'll be in John chapter 7. We'll start in verse 1. After this, Jesus traveled in Galilee, since he did not want to travel in Judea because the Jews were trying to kill him. The Jewish festivals of shelters was near. So his brother said to him, leave here, go to Judea, so that your disciples can see your works that you were doing. For no one does anything in secret while he's seeking public recognition. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus told them, my time has not yet arrived, but your time is always at hand. The world cannot hate you, but it does hate me because I testify about it. That its works are evil. Go up to the festival yourselves. I'm not going to the festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said these things, he stayed in Galilee. So here we have kind of this mundane passage, right? It's, it's almost like a travel log or, or I guess kind of an anti-travel log, right? It's like Jesus should have gone to Judea. His brothers wanted him to go to Judea. He didn't go to Judea. But then he ended up going to Judea, right? Like that's what it looks like on the front. Like if we just read 1 through 13, that's what we see. Jesus is staying put, but his brothers want him to go. So, but there are some interesting things that I really want us to note here. First, the, the book of John is arranged almost exclusively around these Jewish festivals that Jesus uh, was alive for. This one is called the, the Festival of Shelters. See, John wanted us to, to tie Jesus very closely to the worship of the Jews. He wanted us to see Jesus' life being reflected in the Old Testament law. This particular festival, the Festival of Shelters, it's also called the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Tabernacles. But they're all different names for the same celebration. And it's a celebration of God's provision for Israel in the desert when they were wandering. Sounds a lot like what we covered last week, right? This actually was also talked about in the previous chapter. In John chapter 6, John references and Jesus references 
the manna in the, in the wilderness. He actually is starting to kind of shape the worship that the Jews had and what he was doing. And, and Jesus would say, I am the bread of life. I am the bread that came from heaven, just like the manna that came from heaven in the wilderness wanderings. I believe John here is doing a great job of reminding us readers that Jesus is the bread that was sent from heaven. But that bread has now changed the game on what all of these celebrations represent. Now all of these celebrations would actually be celebrating Jesus because Jesus was God's ultimate provision. The pivotal verse for this entire chapter, though, is actually verse 5. It's actually just kind of a little commentary from John. John does this a lot. Well, he'll, he'll write something, and then we'll see it parenthetically, or we'll see kind of an aside kind of comment. John gives his own commentary on his own gospel, which is very helpful. But John tells us that Jesus' own brothers, his own flesh and blood, well, half of his flesh and blood anyway, did not really believe that he was the Messiah. They didn't believe that he was the Savior of the world. I'll revisit that a bit more in a bit, but here they're telling Jesus, hey, go to Jerusalem. See, under the man-made law, Jesus was actually required to go to Jerusalem for this festival, as all Jews were. But Jesus had a very particular plan, and he had a very particular timeline, and this just didn't fit into it. He would not be rushed. This interaction with Jesus actually mirrors another time that another family member came up to Jesus and wanted him to do something. It was Jesus' first miracle, or first sign in John chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana. Jesus' mother, Mary, comes to him and says, hey, we've run out of wine, and it's an embarrassment to the family. And Jesus says, woman, which is a, a, not, not a write-off, but it's actually a term of infection. He says, woman, it is a term of affection, not infection. But he says, woman, it is not yet my time. And here we see Jesus saying the same thing. Jesus knew what he was here to do and knew when he would do it. But his family just really didn't get it. His family just didn't understand who he was. And this request by Jesus' brothers to go to Judea it can be interpreted in two ways. Both interpretations, I think, bring us to the same conclusion, but we'll, we'll talk about both. We could look at Jesus' brothers and we could think that they're being antagonistic. Like, hey, if you really want people to know who you are, shouldn't you, like, be telling them? Like, if you're supposed to sh save us, you should show us, right? This speaks to their unbelief, and it sounds kind of like what brothers sound like, right? If they don't believe their, their siblings, they're kind of ribbing them. Could you imagine being the younger brother of Jesus, though? Like, seriously, he's literally perfect. How exhausting must that have been? Like, Mary is, like, on the front porch, like a pastor on Sundays, like, wringing her hands, saying, like, can't y'all just be more like Jesus? Like, can you imagine growing up like that? I can only imagine that this is what my younger brothers feel like, being in my shadow. Um, so I totally sympathize with Jesus and his brothers. But um, they were, at this point, they're probably like, bro, it's your time to put up or shut up, right? Like, like we heard how, how wonderful you are, Jesus. Now you got to prove it. The other way that this could be interpreted is that their insistence is that they believe that Jesus was special. They believe that he could change things, but only if people knew about him. They probably had seen 
people flocking to Jesus his whole life. We know that Jesus, early on when he was 12 years old, was at the temple, and all of the temple leaders would, would come around him and listen to him teaching because he understood things that none of them did. They, they saw that he could work a crowd. They knew that he might be the key to breaking Roman oppression. They knew that he was special, but that was it. They did not believe in him in a saving way because their expectations of him were not at all in accordance with who he actually was. They expected a king, an earthly king, to break Roman oppression. But both interpretations here show us that whether they were antagonistic or enthusiastic, they did not believe that Jesus was actually God. If they did, they would have been following him, not trying to lead him. Jesus really gets down to the root of why he does not want to go to Jerusalem as he continues in his response. The Jews, they wanted to kill him because they hated him. But why do they hate him? There's, there's two reasons, really. For the first, we need to go back a, just a few chapters and look at, at when this murderous plot actually starts, and it's in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, Jesus responded to them, my father is still working, and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying to kill him, trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. For those who were not with us or who might have forgotten, the context here is that Jesus has just healed a man on the Sabbath, and he instructed the man to carry his mat on which he, the man had been lying for almost 40 years. This broke one of the man-made laws of work on the Sabbath, and it got the church folk all mad. Then Jesus doubles down. Not only is he telling a man to break a man-made rule, but he's also calling God his father. Now, to our, our 21st century ears, that might not seem so, like, upsetting. It might not seem like, well, yeah, we, we know that God's our father. But at this point in time, no one had ever used that term to describe God. God had been the corporate father of Israel, but God was never an individual's father. And so Jesus is now elevating himself and saying, look, I am the son of God. He is my personal, my Abba, Father. John's commentary on the subject shows us that to call God his Father was to put himself, meaning Jesus, on an equal level with God. And that was not just breaking a Sabbath law. That was blasphemy. The Jews were incensed. The second reason that the Jews hated Jesus was because he exposed their sin. No one wants their sin, their misdeeds, their debauchery brought to light. None of us do. We would all like for our darkest parts to stay in the dark. But Jesus proclaims that he is the light of the world and that light exposes sin. When the light of Jesus' righteousness is held up against the tapestry of our lives, our sin becomes extremely apparent. Once our sin has been exposed, we can either come to him for cleansing or we can hate him for showing us just how dirty we are. Those are really the only two options. Jesus didn't really give any wiggle room there. 
He exposed how sinful we are by living a life perfectly, by teaching what he, what being perfectly human looks like. He lived a life that we all should have been living, but for sin. And it's not just keeping the law. It was about loving your neighbor, taking care of widows, taking care of orphans, visiting people in prison, feeding the hungry, healing the sick, clothing the naked, and forsaking earthly pursuits for heavenly ones. That is what Jesus came to show us. Jesus has only given us three options for how we view him. Liar, Lord, or lunatic. His brothers were not sure which one he was at this point. Some of you in this room may not be sure what he is. Some of you may be sure that he wasn't God, but you think that maybe Something was still good about him. But I don't think you can think that. I want to build out an argument for this assertion. And and just like any logical argument, there are a few presuppositions that we have to agree to before we start this, okay? The first one is this. The Gospels accurately capture Jesus' words, all right? Presupposition one is that the Gospel actually captures what Jesus said. While I don't have time to get into a deep dive into why we can believe this presupposition, I will briefly throw out one of the strongest pieces of evidence that I have found. The Gospels were written and widely circulated in the lifetime of those who actually heard the words of Jesus. As far as we can tell, these people affirmed that what was written was actually what was spoken. We have no records that these accounts of Jesus' life were disputed at the time that they were written and circulated. To me, that's pretty strong evidence. If my best friend were to have a biography written about him and something in it was not true, I would try as hard as I could to dispute it and let people know that, no, that's not what he said. But we don't have those records. Our second presupposition is this. Our modern translations accurately capture the original writer's words. Now, this is extremely important. If we don't have the words that the writers actually put down, then we don't have the words that Jesus spoke. It's that simple. But by God's divine providence, we have more evidence of the biblical accuracy of translation than any ancient text in history. For the writings of Plato or Socrates, we have almost zero source documents within a couple hundred years. So Plato and Socrates, we read their writings, we think we have the original words, but we are talking about two, three, four, five hundred years before we ever have an actual document, possibly up to a thousand years after those original books were written. We don't have any source documentation for that. However, with the Bible, we have over 1,500 source documents from within decades to about 100 to 150 years past the originals. And in historically speaking, that's really close. We have it translated into Ethiopian early on, and those translations are the same as the ones that we have. Even the Old Testament is extremely accurate in its original documentation. The more that we discover documents through archaeology and the more we find uh, how to translate ancient documents, we actually find that our translations are more and more accurate. And when we find a discrepancy, we adjust our translation 
we add footnotes, or we actually take out verses that, not that we don't like, but that weren't in the original documents. When we find a document that has a verse, and the oldest documents don't include that verse, many translations just take them out. Because we are very, very interested in the original words, not in someone's ideas. We want to hear the words of Jesus, not the words of some dude. Our third presupposition is this. One cannot lie about being God and still be good. Now this one is more a moral agreement, right? We have to agree on the morality of this. This last presupposition is a moral judgment. Can someone lie and still be a good person? Well, I'm not going to go into that, but, but maybe, right? I think all of us at some point have told a lie and I think some of us, morally speaking, are pretty good people. And let's just say that they can. So, but, but, but can someone claim to be God and get hundreds of people to follow them and hundreds of thousands of people to put their eternal life in their hands and still be a good person if they're lying? Probably not. To take it even further, many of the people who chose to follow Jesus ended up giving up their lives because they believed in him. They died horrible deaths because they would not recount their belief in him. We've seen cults where a leader claimed to be God or to to have a special revelation from God and it cost their followers their lives. Were those cult leaders good men? I, I would say no. Unequivocally. They cannot be considered good. So if Jesus was not who he claimed to be, he cannot be a good man because he lied about being God. So with these presuppositions in mind, let's look at the rest of our passage because the Jews were kind of contemplating this same thing. Verse 10 says this, After his brothers had gone up to the festival, then he also went up, not openly but secretly. The Jews were looking for him at the festival and saying, where is he? And there was a lot of murmuring about him among the crowds. Some were saying, he's a good man. Others were saying, no, on the contrary, he's deceiving the people. Still nobody was talking publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Some Jews thought he was a good dude, while others thought he was a liar. Even then, early on in Jesus' ministry, the debate was raging. His brothers didn't know what to think. The people uh, around him didn't know what to think. The people who listened to him didn't know what to think. So what should we think? Let's look at Jesus' first, or let's look at this, the crowd's first claim. See, I think that Jesus could not have been a good man. For all of the reasons that we stated, Jesus couldn't have been a good man. Jesus claims to have authority to forgive sins. He claims to be the only way to eternal life. He claims to be the only way to God the Father. He told people to leave their families and to follow him. He led a homeless group of vagabonds from viable careers into poverty and persecution and finally death. He broke the man-made religious laws of the day saying that he had special insight and authority. He nearly caused insurrections on multiple occasions when the Jews would come around him and try to make him king. He told a dying man next to him while he was being crucified that that man would go to heaven because of the faith that that man had in Jesus. 
maybe the way of life that he taught was good. In fact, I think that if we live the way that Jesus taught, it's the best way we could ever live, even if his claim to be God is not true. But, if what he said, that he was God, was not true, he cannot himself be good. The second, let's take on the second idea. Maybe, maybe Jesus could have been a good moral teacher, but friends, Jesus could not have been a good moral teacher. In 1969, there was a book published titled, Jesus Means Freedom. And that, it argued that even if Jesus didn't actually exist, the name of Jesus has become a symbol of human freedom. So if you believe in the liberation of people from oppression, then you believe in Jesus. In the 19th century, liberal critics declared that Jesus was just a great ethical teacher and nothing more. Even as we track the rise of existential theology, it has been said that Jesus is just a great example of existential thought. However, a Jesus who is just a symbol of liberation, an existential paradigm, or a great ethical teacher just is not the biblical Jesus. Jesus' claims were all based on his ability to know things that no man could know and do things that no man could do. He told us to deny ourselves and pick up our crosses to follow him. Jesus never claimed to be a good moral teacher. He claimed to be God. Moral teacher is, is just not an option for the Jesus that we read about in Scripture. So I think the only thing that we can assume is that Jesus was who he said he was. God. We're only left with one option, friends. Jesus was who he claimed to be. What's the proof of that? Well, I, I think the, it all honestly hinges on one thing. The resurrection. Anyone could claim the things that Jesus did. And many people have. Anyone could have gotten people to follow them. And many people have. And anyone could die for their beliefs if they're delusional enough. And many people have. But it takes God to raise from the dead. In fact, if the resurrection isn't real, then Jesus wasn't God. And y'all, we aren't saved. And our faith is useless. These aren't my words, okay? Just if, if that made you feel a little uncomfortable. These aren't my words. One of the people who doubted Jesus the most early on until he actually met Jesus wrote this very thing. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us this. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we, have pity, we, are, we should be pitied more than anyone. Friends, this man, he was named the Apostle Paul. 
He persecuted Christians. And by persecuted, I mean he hunted them down. He drugged them out to the city gates. And he led people to stone them to death. Until he met Jesus. And then he realized that everything that Jesus said was true. He realized Jesus could not have been a good man. In fact, here he makes the argument that we've actually blasphemed against God to believe in Jesus if he was not who he claimed. And if we just put our faith in the good, ethical, moral teachings of Jesus, then in verse 19 he tells us that we should be pitied far more than anyone else. If Jesus was just a good moral teacher, then everything that we have done together here as a church is worthless. Because Jesus wasn't God, and he cannot save us. The ultimate argument for the deity of Jesus is his resurrection. Only God could do that. No man, no matter how good, could do that. His friends watched him die. And they were willing to die themselves to attest that the resurrection happened. They knew in those moments when Jesus talked to them after he had died and been buried that everything that Jesus had taught was true and no one could ever deny it. The resurrection is the proverbial nail in the coffin of any argument other than that Jesus was who he claimed. Jesus not only came to expose our sins, friends, but he came to die to forgive them. What kind of God does that? So many people look at the Bible and they see it as a list of rules, of ways to please God enough that we make some kind of quota to be good enough to get, to earn access into heaven. Instead, it's the story of a God who loved his creation so much that he stepped out of heaven to lay down his life to save you. We look at Jesus and we hate him because his life's teaching, his life and teachings expose our deepest inadequacies. But the reality is, Jesus came to show us just how sick we are so that we're willing to let him save us. He knew that without this drastic step, we wouldn't even know that we needed saving. Friend, do you know that you need saving? You can't be saved by a liar. You can't be saved by a lunatic. But you can be saved by the King of Kings, by the Lord of Lords, Jesus. Now, for those of you who have believed, those of you who have accepted this salvation from sin and death, let me ask you a really hard question. Is Jesus really Lord of your life? Is every part of you submitted to his will and to his ways? Can we honestly look at the lordship of Jesus and see it reflected in our lives? I want to leave us with this question. What is your next step in making Jesus Lord of your life. You see, if Jesus wasn't a liar, if Jesus wasn't a lunatic, if Jesus was Lord, 
then we owe him everything. Because he gave everything. He gave up every right he had. He came to be lowly, to be hated, to be spit on, to die poor and broken and humiliated. That is what he gave. Our Lord, our King gave that for us. And friends, whether we have put our faith in Jesus or whether we haven't, each of us have a next step. Every one of us has a step to make Jesus Lord in our life. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, that next step is a step to say, God, I'm a sinner. And I need saving. And I believe that only you can do it. I can't save myself. But I know that you can. For those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, it's just... It seems so simple, but it's so complex. Our selfishness, our ambitions, our anger, our pride, our greed. All of these things that exist in our lives prove that Jesus has not taken his right place as Lord. Each of us in this room have a next step to take. A step toward establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In our heart as in his. So Brad's going to play, and I'm just going to leave it for just a minute. But I want us all to reflect on this question. And I want us to try to come with some actual step, not a like, oh, I'll be better, or oh, I'll just read my Bible more, or, or whatever. I want us to come with an actual step. What is your next step toward making Jesus Lord in your life? For me, it's laying down my pride, my need to be right. For me, not pointing to Jesus not being like him and being humble with my wife, with my church, with my daughter. That's my next step. Because Jesus showed us what humility looks like. So I want to challenge all of you to take this next minute, and it'll just be a minute, to reflect on what your next step is. And then we'll do communion together.